welcome to the ADHD Women's Wellbeing Podcast. I'm Kate Moore Youssef, and I'm a wellbeing and lifestyle coach, EFT practitioner, mum to four kids, and passionate about helping more women to understand and accept their amazing ADHD brains. After speaking to many women just like me, and probably you, I know there is a need for more health and lifestyle support for women newly diagnosed with ADHD. In these conversations, you'll learn from insightful guests, hear new findings and discover powerful perspectives and lifestyle tools to enable you to live your most fulfilled, calm and purposeful life wherever you are on your ADHD journey. Here's today's episode. Hi everyone, welcome back to the ADHD Women's Wellbeing Podcast. I'm Kate Moore Youssef, your host as always. And today I have Hester Granger and I'm really looking forward to speaking to Hester because we've been backwards and forwards quite a little bit, but finally we're here. And if you haven't heard of Hester, she is a neurodiversity consultant. She is the co-founder of Perfectly Autistic, a radio presenter and a former TV presenter who was diagnosed with ADHD in her 40s. And together with her husband, Kelly, who is autistic and also has ADHD, they run Perfectly Autistic. And the Neurodiversity Consultancy works with organisations to raise awareness and acceptance of neurodiversity in the workplace and works with parents in education settings around autism and ADHD. And Hester is also a mum to her two children who are autistic and have ADHD and has lots of lived and learned experience. And she started her career as a presenter on Channel 5's The Right stuff and she then worked on ITV shows including Loose Women and today with Des and Mel. So Hester I'm delighted to have you on lots of interesting conversation um, there already but I guess where did you start I mean you sort of just spoke then about you getting diagnosed in your early 40s and also your husband as well how did that all manifest and who got diagnosed first I guess? Yeah it's really interesting I think So my husband, Kelly, and I have been together for 21 years now. Um, And when we first met, we obviously didn't know we were neurodivergent. We went on, we had children. And then it really started with um, our son, Hudson, who was little at the time and um, didn't wean properly. And just everything else was was fine. I kept being told, maybe he's autistic. And they said, oh, he can't be autistic because he makes great eye contact. I mean, such a cliche. Or he can't be autistic because he's really snuggly and cuddly. Anyway, so we ended up looking into an autism diagnosis for Hudson when he was about seven. Off the back of that, India was then diagnosed because when we talked about traits for Hudson, I was like, oh, that didn't really resonate to the psychologist, but that's definitely India. Then I would send these bits and pieces of information. I'd WhatsApp them to Kelly, my husband, who was away um, a lot, often abroad or in the country, sort of um, away overnight and things. And he'd reply, was that me or is that Hudson? (laughs) Because they're very, very similar. And that was where sort of Kelly's autism diagnosis, um, the journey of that started. Then during lockdown, obviously, um, as with everybody, if you had children, you had to homeschool, um, those dreaded words. And um, during that, we were just spending more time with the children and just realising that actually their processing was just a bit slower. They're both super bright, super intelligent, top sets, et cetera, at school, but just I remember Kelly was doing some maths with Hudson and sort of had explained something four or five times and said, right, you do it now. And Hudson sort of almost not quite snapped out, but just went, do what? And Kelly was like, um, and so we decided to look into ADHD, having read lots about it. And during the assessment um, with the psychologist said to me, so you've you've got ADHD, have you? And I was like, no, (laughs) no, why? She's like, oh, maybe look into it. And um, 
it just makes so much sense. Even like you just mentioned at the beginning, my career, incredibly diverse. I've added it up and I've had 30 full-time jobs, right? Like I've never been sacked. I've never been fired, but I like change. I get bored really easily. We've moved house. Kelly and I have moved countries. We've moved houses so many times. And you look back now and go, oh. So I ended up seeking a diagnosis when I was 43. And the more I was talking, Kelly would then be like, God, that really sounds familiar. But oh, I think it's because I'm autistic. And obviously, there's such a huge link with comorbidities. Um, So Kelly ended up getting diagnosed with ADHD as well. So the three of them are autistic and ADHD, and I just have ADHD. I mean, that's a very interesting insight into something that I can highly resonate with, (laughs) you know, just the moving jobs and house and all of that. And I wonder how your husband coped with that, with his autism, because that, you know, how, how, I mean, how does it interplay together, uh, the ADHD and the autism in a couple? That's quite interesting to know. It's really interesting as well, because he says that his autism and ADHD often like fight with each other. So he loves Mm -hmm. the idea of, you know, control and systems and everything in place and knowing what we're doing and then his ADHD side is like no come on let's do this let's go so he can be really spontaneous um and we've like I said we've we've moved lots and I remember years and years ago we'd only be I mean even this story is ridiculous but we'd only been together three weeks and we'd known each other from years before and not, not seen each other for years about five years we've been together for three weeks and Kelly said oh just so you know I'm going to Australia I've got my visa do you want to come and I was like yeah three months later <laughs> I mean, like you know if my daughter did that, I'd be like, you're not going anywhere. <laughs> you're staying at home. Um, and three months later, we were living in Australia, 24 hours together. And I remember at the airport, I was so excited. I literally was jumping up and down, which I often do, just a lot of energy. <laughs> and he and I said, I'm so excited. And we'd given up our homes separately and we'd given up our jobs. And he just went, yeah, should be good. And I remember thinking, that's a really weird reaction. At the time, I thought, that's such a strange reaction. And now we know it's because his autistic side is probably thinking, oh, my gosh, I don't know what we're getting ourselves into. Um, You know, and obviously the whole unknown of travelling. But his ADHD side was like, we need to go and do this and this will be amazing. So it does definitely almost fight with each other. And the the children sort of sometimes say, like, mummy, don't forget we are autistic as well because I'm like to my son, come on, let's do this, let's do this. And he's like, Mm. you've given me so many instructions. And I'm like, I'm sorry. So we talk about it. We're all really open. And we are the way we are. And we can't help it. And I think we're all very kind to each other, I think, because of that in our family. Yeah, I mean, to have that level of awareness and um, insight and knowledge um, into all of this is is so, I think it's just incredible, because then you when you make your choices and your decisions as a family, you kind of understand, like, where are going to be the obstacles, what challenges, what we're all going to be on board with, what we're going to find difficult. So, yeah, it's really interesting. I'm just wondering, you know, when we hear this more and more, um, that there is this, obviously, we've got a spectrum anyway, but the crossover of ADHD and autism is getting more and more common, like people are starting to understand the nuances between the two and how they can inter- interact and interplay with each other. I mean, do you think that now, as we're understanding neurodiversity more, that the autism and ADHD is just going to almost be kind of like um, an amalgamation of the two? Because sometimes it's hard to unpick, isn't it? What's the ADHD? What's the autism? Because I can see that in my family as well. You know, I can see autistic traits and I see the ADHD traits. I don't think I'm autistic, but some of my traits are. I just wonder, sort of, as we move forwards with more knowledge and awareness, do you think it's going to almost be packaged 
together. It's a bog yeah. off kind of thing. You know, <laughs> it's really interesting, actually, because Kelly um, often talks about that, about actually in years to come, is it just going to be that we have just different brains? And as you say, you're just almost considered you know, that you have more autistic traits than more ADHD traits. I mean, I take things really literally. Um, my processing sometimes really quite um, slow and I just take quite a lot of time sometimes, you know, someone's talking and I'm, I think because in my head it's 100 miles an hour. But I think there's so much crossover and even as well, like with other um, neurodivergent conditions as well. So our daughter's just being diagnosed um, as dyspraxic. It mm. makes so much sense, but we've always put it down to the autism and you you almost kind of, you almost go with what your first diagnosis is, if that makes sense. So Kelly sort of quite often says, I, I find it really difficult to think about having ADHD and my ADHD because I'm so focused on learning all I can about autism. But you're right. I'm, I mean, we always talk about it as like a neurodivergent brain. And when we're doing our training, we're like, there are going to be loads of traits and you obviously to reach the diagnostic criteria for autism for example you have to have I hate the term but triad of impairments and mm. you have to obviously have a number of characteristics within each of those the corner of the triangle so obviously you can have autistic traits just as you can have ADHD traits but actually you need to as you know have a, have enough don't you of those traits to then hit that diagnostic criteria so who knows five ten years time 15 20 years time it'd be really interesting to see what happens with diagnosis yeah I mean what we've kind of learned in the past few years alone is is come on leaps and bounds and the fact that now we've got companies like yourself going in and teaching and educating people I mean that didn't exist a few years ago if you sort of said 10 years ago what you'd be doing now you probably wouldn't have believed it and so you know who knows what's going to happen in the next few years so tell me a little bit you've obviously your career was in broadcasting did you notice any of your ADHD traits you know was there RSD there was there imposter syndrome was there worry was there overwhelm like how did that when you're in such a kind of like high pressure job especially broadcasting and radio how did you manage that I guess and and at what point were you masking at what point were you letting the ADHD just kind of like have its full kind of um song and dance I guess that's such a good question because I would say all of those at different times and it's only now being diagnosed later in life that you look back and you go oh my gosh okay that's why that you know the right stuff was a live show every day it's now the Jeremy Vine show you know so I would literally sit there I was in the booth that was called the booth girl (laughs) um sit there in the booth and I'd be answering the calls and I'd be talking to Matthew Wright and Kate Silverton and James O'Brien etc I'd be out and about doing box pops on the streets and that I mean, hits my dopamine levels 100%. You see that on air sign go, and I am like, showtime. <laughs> you know, that is just, even now, I talk about it. I can see, you know, I can feel it inside. It just really excites yeah. me. The same, you know, um, presenting on um, for BBC Radio as well. It just, like, that really does float my boat. And I think it's, but the the problem was then when I, um, so I presented for a year, and then I met Kelly, and we went traveling to Australia, and that's kind of what happened there. And the show, I was originally in Norwich with the show, and the show moved to London. And I thought, actually, do you know what? It's a really nice natural time. I've met Kelly we're going to Australia then when we came back I got a job working um on I think it was today with Desimel first which obviously really interesting because Melanie Sykes has now been diagnosed as autistic quite mm. recently and um so I was on that show and again it was I was a associate producer and I was a celebrity booker um and looking back now there were times when that almost the the panic of of things or not getting something right or then it would almost spiral and especially on loose women as well because that was I don't know why it almost felt more pressure but I remember there was a time I was was telling a friend about it actually the other day and even now it fills me a bit of dread where I was meant to read a book we had a guest on and because I was a celebrity booker you'd an associate producer you'd like 
give all the information and then you'd give it obviously to the presenters and you'd write up all the questions. You'd often pre-interview the celebrities for them. And I remember I'd forgotten to read this book and um, the producer hauled me in front of a group of the loose women and said, you need to say what's happened here. And I just remember sitting on the tray, like on the tube before this happened going, oh my God, I've not read the book. And you know what it's like with ADHD? It has just slipped my mind. I can't even explain. I can't, like, I knew the guest was coming on. He was my guest. I was meant to read this book. So I like speed read the book, hooray for hyperfocus, speed read it and managed to go in and say, yeah, I didn't read it from cover to cover, but this is what it's about, et cetera, et cetera. And my hyperfocus kind of came into play. But that was when I just started to think, do you know what? This isn't the lovely industry it, it used to be to me or how much I used to enjoy it. So I started to look at PR because I would have a lot of PR clients would get in touch with me to get their products or surveys or whatever on air. And that's kind of how I moved away from the media because the contracts were every sort of two to three months being renewed. And again, as you say, rejection sensitive dysphoria. So that whole sort of playing of on you, you know, mm. thinking, well, am I going to, is my contract going to get renewed? Am I going to be put onto a different show? What's that going to be like? Who's the people going to be with? It was such an unknown time that actually when it naturally came to an end, we happened to move out of London. It just kind of, I believe in fate and it just kind of felt the right time to move on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you were explaining that, I could feel that in my body as well, because I've been in those situations. And, and you know, what you're describing there is like your nervous system is just like on high alert um, and you are kind of like it's fight or flight moment. Yeah. And for us, that takes a long time for us to, to settle. You know, you could be in that sort of like high alert for a few days and not be able to kind of come out of that and the overthinking and like you say, the RSD. Yeah. And, you know, to work in an environment where you don't know where your next job's going to be every two or three months, that is just exhausting and yeah. I know someone with ADHD who works in the TV industry and she couldn't work out this is before she understood um she couldn't work out why she was always on the cusp of burnout she mm. had adrenal fatigue um she was so like wired the whole time she could never settle never relax and it's because she was literally it was like fight or flight hypervigilance like I need to constantly be chasing the next contract. Yeah. Um, and and that industry in itself is just so high pressured. So yeah. I think sometimes when we get these diagnoses, we suddenly look back at our career and other industries that we work in, very much, you know, these very high pressure corporate jobs as well, where it's like, this is a clash against mm. my values, my alignment, my nervous system, how yeah. I mentally can operate from a good baseline and that's what I enjoy seeing I mean it's very hard for women that come to me and they say you know I'm just constantly burnt out and exhausted I'm on the cusp of some form of nervous breakdown and I don't understand why mm. and then we're able to unpick it and realize that they're just a totally out of sync and alignment with who how they want to operate you know yeah. how they want their lifestyle to be and like you say you moved out of London mm. and that felt like fate yeah. um tell me a little bit about sort of the moving out of the big city away from the fast-paced industry and I guess what led you towards what you do now? Again, a bit of another ADHD story. It was really interesting because we came to Reading for the day. Um, we used to live in Clapham and we were going to buy a flat and it all fell through. And as I said, I believe in fate. We came to Reading for the day just for lunch, just thought, go somewhere new. And we bought a flat. <laughs> we it. just literally just <laughs> what our fun thing used to do at the weekend would be to go and look at new builds. And we went and looked at these amazing new build flats and overlooked the Thames. And we'd already got a mortgage in place. And we were just like, oh my gosh. And we, they, we were like, we're going to buy it. I mean, it's ridiculous now. Again, nobody ever said, have you got ADHD? No one ever said you do a very spontaneous, you know. So we ended up moving. 
absolutely loved it. We're right in the middle. It was kind of a really nice transition. So we were still really near to London, but we were right in the middle of Reading. And it just so it was like a, a nice easing into sort of slowly quieter pace of life and then basically as I said I I ended up working in PR because it kind of I used to do a lot of writing and media and it sort of fitted with with doing that but as you say about the corporate career I really then quickly I remember I worked for like a really big finance company and I was just sitting there going like as their you know um, PR and comms manager but like thinking this really isn't quite it doesn't quite fit and I'm not really Mm. corporate and I never quite dressed appropriately and I'd always the masking I would kind of I would think I didn't really realise it was masking, but I'd just try and be less Hester. <laughs> I'd just like try and laugh not so loudly or tone down what I was wearing a little bit or just be just a slightly duller version. And so I then actually got made redundant when I was pregnant with my daughter. And again, I was like, okay, there we go. That's That was meant to be, like look mm. forward, not backwards. And so I ended up working for myself doing PR um, and social media and working with clients, which was great because it meant I could pick and choose, which again fits the ADHD brain. So I had loads of different clients and then would only work with people who've got the same morals and values as me because, again, you can you can choose that. And then it was when we the children were diagnosed as autistic and we were literally handed our report and sent on our way. We were just like, that's not right. What, I, I went down an ADHD rabbit hole. And so that's how we set up Perfect Autistic originally as a Facebook community, because I was like, mm. if we've gone through this, other people would have done the same and they might not know where to look. So that's kind of how it started was as a Facebook community. And then when my husband, he had got a very successful career in, in the corporate world, again, head of sales and marketing teams and really not very autism friendly when you think about it. When he told his boss that he was autistic, his boss laughed and said, we don't look autistic and he was just like right so yeah you don't look it I just thought you were really blunt and I just thought you had a stick up your and we were just like mm. and that was that and we just like and we're done so we just Kelly decided that if he'd gone through that you know a big global company if he'd gone through that then other people would have done too and that's kind of how Perfectly Autistic as a neurodiversity consultancy came about in terms of working with workplaces and organizations to help than being neurodivergent friendly because there's so much work to be done as you know um and that's kind of how that came about just kind of a bit of a natural evolution really yeah I mean I love what you described then because me and my husband are quite similar to that we're quite spontaneous but also I think when we are you have that neurodivergent brain I do even though it is impulsive I think we're very highly tuned to our gut and that intuitive kind of like is it a yes is it a no and when we've made those decisions together, even though they feel impulsive to others, we always know that it's a good gut decision. And they happen few and far between, but when it happens, it's kind of like, okay, that was a good impulsive decision. And what you're talking about with your husband's boss's reaction, you'd think that was like the 90s, you'd think that was like the 80s, but this is literally happening right now. Yeah, and like three years ago. (laughs) Yeah, we we work in this bubble. We're in a bit of an echo chamber because we sort of really understand and we speak to and, and, you know, obviously we sort of follow lots of the same people on social media. So we're kind of conditioned to this conversation. But when you are in a corporate environment and like you say, if say your personality is maybe a little bit sort of guarded or you, you you don't sort of relax easily in front, you know, lots of people, all these different things. And again, as you know, one ADHD person, one autistic person is not the same as someone else. Yeah. But do you feel that we're only at the very beginning? Like, you know, you go into businesses and consult for them and mm. go into big organizations. 
what kind of level of understanding are you finding with neurotypicals? Sadly, not not where we should be. I love that people are and organisations are wanting to have these conversations. But I literally spoke to a really big organisation the other day and I said, you know, obviously we were diagnosed both in our 40s, my husband and I, and I said, and we didn't know. And he just said, and he was really honest, and he just said, I had no idea people wouldn't know that they're neurodivergent. And I sat there and I thought, how can he think that? But then it's not his bubble, it's not his world, it's not, you know, Kelly always makes a joke about neurodiversity, you know, you think it's the Britain's Got Talent Act kind of thing. You know, it's not, we know the word, we know all about, you know, what neurodiversity means and what neurotypical means. And so many other people don't. And I just think it, we're playing the long game here. It's a long game. It's not, you know, we always say this when we work with organisations, you're opening up a Pandora's box within the workplace. You need to have the support and systems in place. If you're going to just get someone in because it's, you know, Autism Awareness Week, um, Autism Acceptance Week, you know, you need to know that actually you need to put that support in for those people and your colleagues that look and think, gosh, actually, that's me. Or even for parent carers, you know, if you're looking after autistic ADHD children, by the time you've got them to school or to wherever they need to be and you've gone to work, you feel like you've done 10 rounds, you know, it's exhausting. So there needs to be this framework and this support. But yeah, I think we're a long way off there being real acceptance and understanding, but it's a start and it's a journey and that's what we're kind of here to help with. Yeah, amazing. So, I mean, are you getting when you go into organisations and again, you've got this kind of almost blank faces people don't really understand what they're looking for and they do have this very kind of stigmatized view of autism and ADHD have you had situations where someone's come up to you and said oh my god you've like described me or you've helped me see something that I've never seen before like are you getting people who are sort of totally oblivious and then suddenly seeing neurodivergent traits in themselves yeah a lot and a lot more than I thought we would do we get emails we get people coming up to us afterwards um or we get people that know that they um are diagnosed I had it recently in a workshop and and the person said I've never told my team I've never felt comfortable enough but yeah I've got ADHD and I was diagnosed and this is who I am um we get a lot of people especially I think with Kelly's story about you know very strong corporate career and this is what you do and you act in this way and you're a certain type of you know sort of corporate mold actually Mm. that's then really hard to unpick and think gosh actually Kelly said he just used to think that everybody else did manage it easier than he did he didn't realise that that's because he was neurodivergent. Um, and I think that's the thing, the same with a lot of my experiences at work. You know, when you then talk about it and you share your story, people are like, I had someone crying in a um, in a session the other day saying, oh my gosh, this is just what you're describing about me and how I am. She said, I, I just feel seen and I feel heard and I didn't know that's what it was. And the same with me, really. I had no idea, genuinely no idea it was ADHD. And I've got friends saying, mm. how did you not know? And I'm like, how did you not tell me? Like... <laughs> Well, you know, and I just think I thought everybody thought the same. I just thought everybody lives in an alternate world where magical things happen. And, you know, you wear sparkly jumpers on dull days because you can. I just think it was normal in inverted commas. I didn't think, I just thought it was me and who I am rather than my ADHD. Yeah, it's an amazing thing that you're doing. And tell me, what kind of organisations are you going into? You know, what are they ranging from? I'm interested to know, like, who is actively seeking out more awareness and education within the workplace it's such a wide range we've done so many talks for so many different people work with really big organizations we've done talks and training with the guardian with bp shell Um, we're partners with mind we've been doing a lot of workshops with them lately which has been absolutely brilliant university of warwick we're doing some um work with lots of sort of education establishments as well the list is is really 
large and wide, lots of people in the media and PR industries as well, obviously a lot of tech um, as well. That's naturally, they're sort of going, hold on, I think we've probably got a neurodivergent workforce. I'm like, yeah, you have. <laughs> um, but so many. And do you know what's amazing is that it all comes to us. What people are saying, because I do a lot of PR and do a lot of talking and writing about autism and ADHD and neurodiversity in the workplace. And people are then having a Google and finding us and saying, this is what we want. But like I said, when we talk to them, we say you can't just do a one-off session or, you know, you can initially, but actually you've got to then have that support and have you got those things in place ready. And we turned down talks as well. There was a massive, massive corporate company and they were so un neurodivergent friendly it was unbelievable and we just said yeah we're not working with you and they were like oh but why not we were like because of this whole process and because it's just kelly and i we can do that because mm. we've got strong morals and values and it's got to align it can't just be a you know tick box exercise oh great we've done neurodiversity training let's move on you know they didn't yeah. want to talk about reasonable adjustments they didn't want to talk about any adaptions to make and you're like why are you doing this what's the point yeah, I was just about to ask you that about like the next steps and how do they embrace that? Because there's one thing you coming in and talking about and creating awareness, but then you're kind of like throwing a bit of a curveball in their logistics and how they operate and obviously more spending more money and having to offer more flexibility. And, you know, run when you run a business, you're trying to cut corners and mm. that's not what you want to hear, you know, accommodations and things like that. But how, you know, I guess, what are you coming in and, and um, advising? What are people asking for? And what would you say if you are working in a big corporate right now and you have had a diagnosis and you are scared to speak out, and you're scared to speak to the HR? Um, I, I have so many clients who work for, for big corporates and are exhausted and drained and they're desperate for more accommodations. They're scared of losing their jobs. Mm-hmm. They're scared of being vulnerable. They're scared of people not understanding. So what would you say to people? Where would they start? and What can they be asking for? Yeah, I think there's so many reasonable adjustments. And you mentioned costs there. So many of them don't have to cost anything. It doesn't, maybe a change in communication styles, maybe a change in how you hold meetings. Um, but these are changes and adaptations that are suitable for everybody. So I got an email yesterday um, from someone in the NHS saying, oh, I'm helping someone um, go for a, a job and they, they want to go for an interview at this company and she's looking for some support. And basically she said, I need to know what questions are going to be asked during the interview. We do a lot of work around recruitment and the interview process, right from job descriptions, all the way up, a lot of HR manager training, et cetera. And I said, but they, she just needs, they just need to ask for the questions. And the company came back and said, yeah, but that's, that's almost like cheating, basically. You know, that's not fair. She has the questions. And I said, but you offer the questions to everybody. It's not about, are you autistic, you're ADHD, you're dyslexic, et cetera. It's, this is just what we do. We make these changes for everybody. So you, if anybody asks for the questions, you let them know what questions they're going to be asked in an interview. But I mean, mm. there's so many changes, really easy to adapt around you know, even lighting, even even having, I hate overhead lights. So just if there's an option to have like up lighters near you or a little lamp on your desk, making sure that if you're easily distracted, like, you know, myself having ADHD, that you're not like sat in the main sort of thoroughfare, that you maybe move desks so people don't have, you know, like standing up meetings and chats next to you. Um, really simple things like you don't have, you know, if you've got an open plan office and there's a kitchen in the middle, don't let people cook you know, last night's curry in the microwave. Nobody likes that. But if you're autistic, if you're ADHD and you've got sensory processing issues, that is going to be the difference between, you know, if you're having a bad day or and that meeting ran late and something else happened and you're suffering from RSD and then someone cooks last night's curry, that is just too much. 
So again, mm. it's just about making these adaptations for everybody. It's not about saying, oh, well, you know, Barry's got dyslexia and Janice has got ADHD. We need to do things just for them. Mm. And that's, I think, where some companies get it wrong. And they say, well, we don't even have a neurodivergent workforce. It's like 20% of the population neurodivergent, 50% do not know it. I got to my 40s not knowing I had ADHD. I had no idea. So there must have been loads of times that I could have had simple adaptions um, put into place. You know, just knowing that there's a quiet room that you can just go and take time out. But that's suitable for everybody. Everybody has mm. bad days. Everybody has overwhelm. Everybody needs to have time just to take stock. It's not about, oh, this is because you're neurodivergent. It's just making workplaces more accessible and, and kind and nice space for all yeah and I think now after lockdown and we've all experienced working from home and recognizing you know how distracting it can be to work in an office how all the sensory stuff can be really overwhelming and certain people have really you know really flourished working at home and I know you know other people really struggled but if you're introverted or there is neurodivergence there you will probably found working at home a much easier envir- environment to to be in obviously there's distractions and all other things going on um i know when i worked i worked in a busy pr office and i've said this before on the podcast but there was so many things that i struggled with um from smells you know literally my sense of smell was just off the charts but i just that was just me. I had a weird sense of smell. I didn't know it was anything sensory, Mm. but it would give me a headache. It would make me exhausted. I would like literally have to move away from something. People would think it was just overreacting, a bit dramatic. Mm. I sometimes have to sit there and like have to put like a scarf around my nose because the sense of smell was just so strong. Yeah. And I look back and I, and I remember getting in my car at six o'clock, this is before kids, I'm getting in my car at six o'clock and being like, oh my God, if I speak or if anyone talks to me, I can't, you know, and I'd get in and my husband or my, you know, he was my boyfriend at the time, mm-hmm. would try and have a conversation with me. And I was like, you can't talk to me for an hour. And I'd go upstairs and I'm remembering this now, we, we lived in this little tiny house and the water pressure would sometimes just be off and the hot water would just turn off. And all I wanted was at like seven o'clock to get in the shower, have a hot shower and just decompress. Yeah. Sometimes that didn't happen. Mm. And I would have the most immature meltdown. I called it an immature meltdown. Like I couldn't understand why that shower would send me into yeah. such a spiral yeah and now I look back is that I just needed you know needed that time yeah. so there's all these little things that we can join the dots to where we would dismiss or mm. invalidate or tell ourselves why we're so ridiculous look at other people but like you say to have um a quiet calm room to sit in to to have a bit of downtime to have the option to sit by a window I mean mm. I remember another thing that was really triggering for me was if I sat underneath the air conditioning vent right. and it would, and I wouldn't have any fresh air and then the smells would sort of circulate, it would make me feel really sick and hot and mm. I would lose my focus. And it was like, all I could feel was like my dry eyes and hot and I couldn't get any work done. And I couldn't understand why this sensitivity was so overpowering, but now I do. And so yeah. for you to be able to come in and talk about those little things where you're not asking for, everyone to have their own office you're not asking no. for all these crazy accommodations it's just little tweaks isn't it for people yeah. to feel more comfortable yeah and, and I think as well it's because we are neurodivergent I always say I think so many people are neurodiversity consultants who aren't neurodivergent and I just think it makes a massive difference because we can explain from our perspective what it's like or how overwhelming it is I you know I had something earlier someone was emailing asking Kelly to to 
talk to a journalist about something rather and I said if it's if it's all written down that's absolutely fine but not just let's not just spring an interview on him and I just think you know you can do that at work with meetings all of a sudden someone's like are you free for a chat I mean that feeling of dread isn't it and you're like you don't know what's coming just you know just schedule, yeah isn't it that, oh can I grab you for two minutes and you're like Am I going to be fired? Mm. Have I been caught doing something? Did, did they see that I was online shopping because I've just taken two minutes downtime? Like, what is it? What happened? <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. And I just think it's it's just by putting certain things into place. And you said, you know, what sort of kind of things do people ask for? And I think it's it's around, it literally even starts right from the interviews and job description and getting people jobs because, you know, we know that that's a massive struggle for neurodivergent people. And I just think it's, by making some really simple changes and just the way we communicate with people so we don't just, you know, in the way they love Ireland, pull them for a chat kind of thing. You know, you actually schedule in a meeting or you give people a, a, a chance to say, well, actually, do you know what? I'm rammed today. I can do later or tomorrow would be even better because like you said at the end of your day when you didn't couldn't have your shower to decompress it wasn't about the shower but it's the fizzy coke bottle analogy that we often use with autistic children where if you start your morning and something stressful happens and the socks don't feel right because you're stressed the coke bottle shakes if you don't get a chance to decompress it a little bit by maybe watching your favorite program for 10 minutes or listening to a great song or whatever it is then the next thing happens the fizzy coke bottle and it keeps going going and then if you don't have that chance to decompress the child gets home or in your case the adult which often happens and fizzy coke bottle explodes and you just don't because you haven't had that chance to take out those little you know just to decompress a little bit yeah. I mean, I just feel like everyone should know this and there's going to be generations, you know, the older generations, which are going to be more dismissive and they're not going to understand and they're not going to want to understand. And it does make me a bit sad. Like I sort of think about my parents' generation and, you know, unless you're actively interested or you actively have like grandchildren or children who, you know, were diagnosed earlier on, I do see that generation almost kind of like, have we missed that one? But we've got, you know, obviously our generation, the younger ones, and I do have hope, I hope for my kids' generation, that this inclusivity and this awareness is just part and parcel. I hope that the, the conversations are now happening more at school. I think kids will always be kids. People, you know, there will be bullying and there will be mean snipes and things like that. But I do believe that neurodiversity will just be part and parcel. You know, they'll have friends who are autistic, friends with ADHD, dyslexic, dyspraxic, and it won't be that fear that I think we would have had growing up in school of being ostracized and ridiculed because I think you know I think we're similar age you know growing up in the 80s and the 90s you didn't want to be different and you didn't Mm. want to have anyone point you know point to you but maybe nowadays the kids are a bit more open to difference and they're open to having these conversations and nothing shocks them as much um but I guess we're we're still dealing with teachers aren't we teachers who need to be reading my mind you're reading my mind I'm thinking it's great that the children understand we had to fight so 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 hard for our children's teachers to understand that our children were neurodivergent they had official diagnosis and they were like well we don't see it at school I mean just we home educate our children now we pulled them out of school we home educate because We just, it was about a year and a half ago, and it's honestly been utterly, utterly life-changing for us to home educate because they were square pegs in round holes. They're both super bright, super intelligent, really funny, lovely members of the class. I know I'm biased, they're my children, I think they're amazing, but they are just... But, it, you know, India's very strong-willed and she's very bright and she would pull the teacher up on absolutely everything. 
and chances are she was probably right anyway. She does it to me all the time. It's very frustrating. But, you know, <laughs> it's, it's just their spirit was being crushed, quite frankly. And I just think the whole school system is so outdated. I could go on a big rant about it. I'm not anti-school at all. I never, ever thought we'd home educate. I never thought we'd be the type of people that home educated. But we are, and it's been amazing. And the children and their anxiety, they are like new children. And as a family, it's impacted us so much more positively and I just think there's so much more awareness that needs to be done at work because selfishly our children are going to grow up and go out and do amazing things in the world and I want the workplaces to be ready for that but there's so much work that needs to be done in schools because you've got you know they're so stretched aren't they teachers and they've got such big class sizes and yet it's you know if your child's neurodivergent they're often not getting the the attention the time sadly that they need because the school system is is broken, really, isn't it? With sort of 30, 32 children in a class, so hard for teachers to try and make everything yeah. different and personal for each child. Yeah. And, and and as we know, you know, since COVID, you know, teachers have been burnt out. They're exhausted. They're going off sick. Many yeah. of them aren't coming back yeah. because the level of, of stress and pressure is just so high. And it does feel like a broken system. Mm. And even in the private schools, I am hearing that... Um, the level of awareness and knowledge is not there and it's like it should be and you kind of think well you're paying for this child's education the teachers should know about neurodiversity they should be educated there should be an awareness there um and it does feel you know I've got a lot of kids I say a lot of kids I've got four kids (laughs) and there's at least two of them you know with ADHD and other things going on and I've had to have similar conversations where I've had to teach the teacher and said please read Mm. this article please understand how this presents in girls Mm. please see the nuances of what autistic traits look like and ADHD traits and perhaps why you aren't spotting the signs like this is because she's a girl and this Mm. is how it manifests differently Um, and they're like oh thank you so much that's really interesting and I think no you should know this like teachers should be getting this training from the minute Mm. they decide they want to be teachers and um, every school should be having you know the training that you're doing Uh, and you know I've got quite a few clients who are teachers and I've got ADHD and are can't believe they got to where they have without knowing they've got ADHD and they're then being able to help the ADHD and autistic kids in their class and being able to really spot the neurodivergent signs and really kind of try and nurture those kids a bit more but again you know our generation we would have seen kids dropping out at 16 Mm. um you know like flunking their GCSEs not turning up to school like the typical naughty kid Mm. um not interested in academia and I look back at the people that I know that happened to and they're all entrepreneur entrepreneurs now there was other traits going on you know quite impulsive maybe there was addiction there was like lots of dopamine seeking and I kind of think could they have been saved or maybe maybe academia and sitting in a classroom like you've spotted with your kids is not the one route you know there's there's other routes and these people have made great successes themselves they've just not gone down the conventional route of a-levels and university Mm. so sometimes we kind of have to think yes education is fantastic but if it's not if the mainstream isn't working for us we have to kind of be resourceful and come up with new solutions which I guess what you've done with your kids 
Yeah, I think so. I think it's it's about doing what's right as a family. But as you say, if you're giving your teachers information and we used to do the same, I always think, what about the parents that don't, don't have that voice, that can't advocate for their child, that don't have the strength, don't have the spoons left to be able to say, do you know what, actually, I'm going to fight for my child. And you'd sort of almost see the teacher's eye roll when they'd be like, oh, hello, Mrs. Granger. <laughs> so I was back again to go, yeah, this has happened or that's happened or please can we talk about this or, you know, um, I just think it was, there was a lot of um, unattendance for my children due to school-related anxiety. You know, there's no, there's, I hate the term school refusal. They weren't refusing to go to school, but they were just so burnt out. They were just unable to attend, um, you know, and I could see the days that they then had downtime and rest and looked after themselves. They would then have, you know, a little bit more energy to go back again, but it was very quickly, once again, that would then sort of diminish. And even now, like my son, I said to him the other day, so Hudson's 11 and India's 13. And I said to Hudson, you know, do you know, you're so good at self-care because of the days that you're not feeling full of energy. He just takes himself off and he lies in bed and he watches friends. Now, if you don't, if you look at that, you think, well, he's being a bit lazy. He's just watching telly. He's not getting up. I see it as self-care. And I said, it's amazing at 11 that you've already worked out. This is what you need. And then the next day he's bounced back and we're off out and we're doing things and we're learning and we're having lessons with tutors or we're swimming or playing football. And I can see that. And I just think it's, they're both very tapped in and in tune to what makes them work and what kind of fills their cup really and, and helps them with self-care. I mean, it's incredible because this is what I'm teaching women in their 40s and 50s. And they're only <laughs> realising now, and listen, I'm, I was one of them, that yeah. our energy is, um, you know, ebbs and flows and you're going to have days where you have lots and you want to really contribute. And those are the days where it's just been too overstimulating and you need to pull back. But we've just been conditioned to think that every day you wake up and you're the same. And every yeah. day you have to deal with whatever's thrown at you and you just have to not react and mm. not respond. But actually, you know, how amazing that your kids are being are growing up to understand their energy and be more intuitive and listen to their their bodily, you know, wisdom and what's going on, sort of like almost doing like an inventory, like a check-in, mm. which is what I'm saying to, to, to women and saying like, when do you ever do that check-in? When do you go inwards? When do you just take some breaths and pause? And they go, never. It's, mm. you know, I'm, I'm just constantly on this juggernaut of life. I'm like, but do you think that is what life should be? That you're mm. just on this cusp of burnout and chronic stress every day? Yeah. And it's only when you start getting curious and asking these questions, they kind of go, well, no, I don't want to live mm. like this anymore. But um, it does take a we do have to pause and we do have to, you know, do that, that check-in. So um, like how amazing that your kids are doing that. And I'm sure they're going to go on and do incredible things. And with that knowledge and that inner wisdom that, um, that they, they can look after themselves. And I mean, I guess as parents, it's all you want. You want your mm. kids to be resourceful and you want them to have resilience and you want them to know what's within their capability and when they need to to take a pause and rest and yeah I mean it's what I'm trying to teach my kids as well <laughs> yeah I think it's I think it's a real challenge but I think like you said about your clients I think you know I now so I had it was had a really busy day on Saturday so I knew I was gonna have a really busy day on Saturday and I had all these plans on Friday like I'm gonna do this I'm gonna do this mm. and now I just take time and I just check and go do you know what, actually I don't have to do that today there's lots of shoulds aren't there you know I should do this I should do that lots of shoulds and I just sat there and actually it was three o'clock it was absolutely freezing and I just had my dressing gown on obviously I don't have to do the school run the children were already at home Friday's our day off and I just sat in a dressing gown I just, you know all snuggled we watched a film it was lovely and it's just what I needed to do but a couple of years ago I'd be like oh, for goodness sake or beat myself up about that but I just think it's about being kind to yourself and when you know like I'm like a Duracell bunny my battery is just 100 miles an hour 
and then I can feel them like whoop, you yeah, know sort of just just going down and I just think I'm now sitting there thinking actually do you know what I just need to take it a bit easier and the same on the Sunday I'd had this amazing day in London on the Saturday it's been brilliant but I was up and out really early I then know that I can't keep going on the Sunday to that level because that is what I was doing and I was burning out and I was getting ill, not terribly ill, but I would be picking up germs, I'd be virusy, I'd be sleeping a lot during the day at the weekends, just not that much fun really, I guess. Mm. Um, and now I realise looking back going, oh my God, you know, and then I sort of think I've not had an afternoon nap in ages because I've not needed to because mm. I've managed my, like you said, the ebbs and the flows and I've managed that. But that takes a long time to sort of try and learn, doesn't it? So I'm glad that the, my two have already got it in them. But as I said, another parent might look and think, goodness, well, that's rather lazy. But it's not at all, is it? It's just self-care. But if they were at school, they couldn't do that. And that's the difference. Yeah. That's the yeah. thing. So tell people how they can get in touch with you if they're listening and they're kind of thinking, you need to come into my <laughs> into my office. Um, what What options have you got and how do you work? Yeah, so we've got our website, which is perfectlyautistic.co.uk. I've got a new website called perfectlyadhd.co.uk. Um, I'm on Instagram as at Hester ADHD. Um, Email is also great. Hello at perfectlyautistic.co.uk. And I just, people get in touch. Sometimes they just want some help and some advice. And we've got loads of great free resources on our website because I think it's really good just to have lots of free stuff available for people if they don't quite know what they want. We've got our Facebook communities. We've got Perfectly Autistic and Perfectly ADHD. ADHD as well, um, which is they're both such lovely kind spaces because when the children were diagnosed, I found lots of different groups and some really weren't mm. for me. And they were quite yeah, depressing yeah. and yes. quite kind of whose child is worse off than the other, like a game of mm. top trumps. It was a bit horrible. So we've created our Facebook communities to be really kind, nice open spaces where people can be who they want to be and just ask for advice and there's no, you know, there's no right or wrong answer. Um yeah, and then people just get in touch and they can either book us for like a webinar or a um, keynote talk or maybe they just want, you know, some training or like a half a day workshop or maybe they just want us to audit their um, interview process and recruitment and things, do a lot of audits and workplace audits as well. Um, and just really, there are lots of different ways to work with us. I think sometimes people come and they don't quite know what they don't know. They don't know what they want. Mm. So we sort of, you know, talk to them about what they're looking for, their colleagues, their work you know space what's it like um and almost like what do they want to achieve from this rather than like we said just doing it for the sake of it because it's a tick box exercise well what do you want for your employees what do you want them to achieve really yeah I mean it sounds incredible and I hope it just goes from strength to strength I have a feeling you can have ambassadors all around the country with <laughs> coming in and doing these these things and going into into offices because that is what we need and the more awareness we have the more acceptance there is and it doesn't feel like it's going to you know it has to be a hard difficult conversation it can just feel like a really open compassionate curious conversation where people are not afraid to ask for what they need and yeah. don't feel afraid that it's going to be like laughed at or ridiculed mm. and because all people want is a more productive workforce all people want is a, a lovely place to work and have yeah. happy staff great you know employees and um successful business so mm. I can only assume that this is what you're contributing to so oh, I think I think it's so oh, thank you I was going to say literally our strap line is healthier happier and more productive workplaces because well, that's the go. key isn't it you've summed it all up <laughs> I used to work in PR <laughs> <laughs> yeah so did I like a catchy a catchy little phrase so yeah <laughs>
Oh, well, thank you so much, Hester. Really appreciate this conversation. Really enjoyed it. And I will make sure all the details are on the show notes and hopefully you'll get lots of lots of contacts coming from this conversation because I think it's really powerful for people to know that this service exists and hopefully you can help lots of people in the meantime as well. That's brilliant. Thank you so much for having me. It's been absolutely brilliant. Thank you so much for joining me on today's episode. I hope you found what you were looking for in this conversation and it's helped guide you towards some further self-healing, self-exploration and most importantly, self-acceptance. And if you have enjoyed this conversation and would like to experience more of my work, such as access to exclusive live workshops and opportunities for group coaching sessions, connecting with other like-minded women and a general feeling of belonging, please come and check out my monthly membership, the ADHD Women's Wellbeing Collective. I've made it as affordable as possible and I offer you lots of resources and opportunities for connection and support from other women all around the world being diagnosed with ADHD later on in life. I'd absolutely love to see you there. All the details are in this episode's show notes or on my website, adhdwomenswellbeing.co.uk. See you in the next episode.